G'day everybody, I'm Scott Poynton and welcome to another QE podcast. And today we're talking with Tony Ronaldo, the man who inspired others to grow trees. Tony's from Australia and I've admired his work for many, many years, but I've never had the pleasure to meet him. I caught up recently with him in Jakarta, of all places, where we both happened to be passing through. Working in Africa many years ago, like so many others before him, Tony had tried to re-establish forests by planting trees. And like so many others before him, he'd failed. And getting to his wit's end, he stumbled upon the answer that had been right there in front of him, in front of everyone in fact, for everyone to see. Natural regeneration. They just hadn't noticed. What was happening is a lot of these seedlings were connected to ancient root systems of the old forest trees and they were coming up through the ground all the time. But they were getting grazed by the livestock and cut by the farmers to feed the livestock. So they never got the chance to re-establish. If they could be left, if they could be protected, so a forest might grow. Tony spotted this and persuaded a few pioneer farmers to give it a go and protect a few bits of land to see what would happen. The results were extraordinary. And now millions of hectares, literally millions of hectares across Africa of what Tony calls farmer-managed natural regeneration are improving the lives by helping farmers to enhance their agricultural yields from lands that are now protected by trees. Tony, like me, was inspired by Richardson Barr Baker. That's where he got his interest in trees. And I think he deserves enormous credit for his tireless work to help people bring forests back where before there were only wastelands and much poverty. I'm with a very, very, very interesting fellow today who I've been reading about and watching his work from afar for many, many years. And it's Tony Ronaldo. Hello, Tony. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. And Tony is the Principal Advisor for Natural Resources, Food Security and Climate Change for World Vision, based in Australia, but spends almost half his life travelling around the world, visiting fascinating projects. And what I find fascinating about Tony's works is that it's so much linked to forests. Um, and different in a way to my work where we're trying to conserve forests that are already standing, Tony does this amazing work that started some years ago, I'm going to learn about it, called Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration, FMNR. I'm going to learn about that in a second. But Tony, if you could just tell us um, a bit about yourself, uh, we might explore that a bit. I'm always fascinated to know people's backstories. Mm-hmm. So... Let us know, who is Tony Renato? Who is this fella that's doing all this amazing work around the world? Uh, pretty quiet, simple fellow. I grew up in northeast Victoria in a little town called Myrtleford and uh, always loved the bush. And perhaps one of the things that links us, Scott, is um, one day my, my dad sold farm machinery and he helped quite a number of farmers in the district and he had this friend, a Yugoslavian refugee originally, and I, I don't know what prompted it, but we went to visit this guy. He, he was quite an entrepreneur, and in the middle of his tobacco shed on the floor, he dumped a whole trailer load of books. He, he'd gone to a library clearance. And I, I love reading, love world affairs and that, and these two nondescript books 
um, green cover, plain green cover. Somehow they, they caught my eye. They, they jumped looked, out at you. They, they really did. And it was so providential. Two books by Richard St. Barbie Baker. I Planted Trees and Sahara Conquest. And I borrowed those books and I devoured them. How old were you, Tony? I, I don't remember. I would have been young teens, very yes, young teens. Right. Yep. But b- before that, what was shaping me, the, the three main things, uh, widespread clear felling of the, the bush. And even as a child, I, I could see it environmentally, it didn't make sense. The siltation of the streams, the loss of biodiversity, wildlife, etc. cetera. I, I didn't know why they had to do it that way. It wasn't against pines as such. But the way they were doing it was so destructive. And, and I, I mentioned, I, I read widely, I watched the news, and in our valley we were growing a lot of tobacco, but on the other side of the world there were children just like me who hadn't done anything wrong, but they grew up in a different place, hungry. And it was so unjust. So a, as a child I felt it was very unfair, but I, I was powerless. And I guess the third aspect was a faith aspect that we are our brother's keeper. We do have a responsibility to care for others. And so those things shaped me, but I thought the adult world's just nuts. Everything's about profit at any cost, even though I could see clearly there's no future in this. For our generation, there'd be nothing left. And then I found these books, and here was a guy who dedicated his life to saving the forest, to using them, but in, in a sustainable way. And, and that greatly inspired me and, and gave me hope. Ha, maybe there is something I can do that'll make a difference. And of course, so much of his work was in that Sahara region when he was looking at how to get trees back. That's where, you know, the men of the trees started in Kenya, in exactly the area. Well, not Kenya, but in that region of the Sahel where you found yourself eventually. But before we get to that, how did you get, you know, young fella, get inspired by Richard St. Barb Baker. I, I know the know the feeling, he did the same to me. Yeah. Um, but what was the path you then took, Tony? Did you say to yourself, right, this is what I'm going to do? Or you, you, did you go through uni? Or where did you, Yeah. So I was your journey? I always loved growing things and that, that hunger thing really grabbed me that it shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. So I went on to study agriculture at uh, University of New England, Armidale, yep. with uh, going overseas in view. And funny, funny thing, I never thought I'd find an Aussie girl mad enough to want to go and live with me in a mud hut in Australia, but I found one. <laughs> Everyone has someone. Yes. So Liz and I met, we were in the same course studying rural science in Armidale. And um, when we finished, there was a four-year degree. I worked for my dad for a year in, in his machinery business. And we studied at Bible College for another year before we joined a mission organisation. And that took us to Niger, the the very country that um, Baker would have come through on his Sahara conquest. Yes. And in in that book, he he mentioned tribes that were, um, I don't know how they were doing their birth control, but the chief had prevented them from having children because their land was no, no longer producing by the time we'd arrived in Niger, there, there were famines, re- regular famines. And when was that, mate? We, we arrived in 1980. 1980, because Zimbabwe Baker went through there in the early 50s, didn't that's, he? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So he was, he, he was this voice in the wilderness t- telling people, wake up, we need to do something, there's a crisis coming. 
And I, I saw what he predicted. I lived it. You lived we it, we yeah. were feeding people 1984, five separate years that we were doing that. And it, yes, there were drought years, but the, the chief cause was deforestation and, and the impact that that had on the productivity of the land. Right. And so, so this is early 80s. And is this when you came to the FMNR? I mean, I, I think you went back to Nigeria a couple of times, did you? Well, we... Was it, it that during that stay that yes, you did? Yeah. Yes, within the mission at, at that time, uh, you would do a four-year term in country, one year back at home, study time, leave time, and then raising your support. So when, when we arrived there, I inherited an existing project. So in the... In the 70s, there had been a famine and the mission had some unspent funding at the end of that famine and they asked the donor permission, can we use this for a tree planting project? Because they, they felt part, part of the issue was desertification and, and if we could teach people the value of trees, we may avert a future famine. And so I inherited this project, but... It was really struggling, and I, I was struggling coping with the lack of success. You know, you're a young fella, you want to change the world, and it was just a miserable failure. We were raising seedlings initially in, um, in, in the city where I lived. I lived on the edge of the city, uh, load them onto a pickup and a trailer and cart them out to the villages, knowing full well that over 80% of them would die. People weren't interested. They called me the mad white farmer. Mm -hmm. They wanted to grow food crops and cash crops. Why was I so concerned about trees? And then physically, uh, the odds were against you. The eight-month dry season, uh, the, the droughts, the strong winds. Uh, if you grow those seedlings out in the dry season in, in preparation for good timing, you want to get them in the ground as soon as the rains start, it's going to be the, uh, that nursery will be the only green spot within miles. So every grasshopper, every right. bird, even, even uh, some kind of toad was popping up because of the moisture there and they would squat on top of the pot and, of course, kill your tender seedling. The odds were stacked. Yeah. So we, we were planting these trees and watching most of them die and I really was so frustrated. I was ready to go home. But I, I felt called to be there. I felt... I was meant to be there. So many things had fallen in place for me to be there. It can't be a mistake. There must be... There's something for you to do here. Yes, yeah. You, you just showed a presentation earlier where you... Here you were letting some air out of the tyres and there was this lovely picture of, of this... what seemed to be a little bush growing further along the road. And you know, through the landscape, there was all of these little bushes and you described how you had that moment where you suddenly realised, hold on a second... You know, this is not a bush. This is the first flourishing of a tree coming back. Tell us about that. And tell, did, was it a aha moment, or you know, eureka, or most definitely because that that was that was one of those frustrating times. And I actually had a load of trees on the trailer, and I knew full well most of them wouldn't be there in a year's time because people didn't care. The goats would get them. I'd stopped the vehicle to reduce the air pressure. The, the roads there, very sandy soil, and, and you just sink. When you've got a load, you just sink and get bogged. So you have to reduce the air pressure. And you know, it, it really sunk in. This is, this is useless. And you, that photo that you saw, it's pretty much a barren plain. And here I am with my, my little load of trees. With that background, it doesn't add up. I'm not, not going to make any leeway here. 
And then for some reason, these bushes, which had always been there, I'd been on that road almost weekly for two and a half years by that stage, but this day, that bush jumped out at me. And Pick me. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I took the time, I bothered to go over and take a closer look because in your mind you're thinking it's just a weed, mm. it's just a desert bush, it's nothing. You, you despise the thing and... There was no reason for it to get your interest because it, it never got up above a metre. Not not thinking through, actually, people are cutting this every year in preparation for cultivation and not, not making the connection. However, when I took a closer look and, and as soon as I saw that leaf, I, I recognised it because there are a few remnant trees in the landscape. This wasn't a bush, it was a tree. The stump was there, it was suckering, and if we manage that growth, I wouldn't have to waste all that effort, the useless effort, on trying to succeed with tr tree planting when I, I call it an underground forest. There's millions and millions of trees in the landscape hidden under the ground, only needing an opportunity to bounce back. Set their shoots up. Yes. And not get them eaten or destroyed or, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I've been so intense in trying to find a solution. You know, we tried so many things, different species, indigenous, exotic, different planting means, so uh, deeper deeper pots for, to have more root mass, planting early, uh, planting with watering, doing whatever. I tried all these things. I read, I researched, nothing worked. So it was working on my mind, and, and as soon as I saw that, I, 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 I instantly Click. got the, the significance of it. Mm. You don't have to plant trees. Yeah. We're not fighting the Sahara Desert. We're fighting a belief system, attitudes, and, and destructive practices. And your attention shouldn't be so much on the, the trees. They, they will grow. If you give them a chance, yeah. they will grow. The attention needs to be on behaviour. Right. What's pushing that behaviour and what can you do to convince people that they will benefit their children will have a better life if we bring at least some. You, you can't have a forest because they need to eat, but at least a, a good percentage of these trees back. That, that was the change. That was a big moment. It was, it's fascinating because you know, one of the things that captured me when I listened to Richard St. Bar Baker was his story of planting trees um, on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And uh, he told the story of this rock mulching where he'd put a rock next to the tree. And what amazed me was, well, that's, and, and what would happen uh, under the moisture of the, under, under the rock, this moisture would come and it would bring the earthworms. The earthworms would come up. And first I thought, well, where are the earthworms coming from yeah. in this desert place? But what was really amazing was he said, and the thing was, if we didn't talk to the goat herder, and the goat herder left, let his goats in there, they'd knock away the rocks. The goats would knock away the rocks yeah. and the trees would die. So it became very clear to me um, that actually it was the people part of it that was the problem. And it sounds like, you know, the trees could actually be just okay on their own, but getting the people to value the trees and to act, change their ways mm. um, was a way of helping them get their trees back and all the benefits that they bring. And it sounds like, you know, you had that similar 
realization. You know, when I was living in Niger, I don't know how conscious I was of what I'd read of Baker, but in rereading these books more recently, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. He listened to people, he respected cultures, and he worked with them. Amazing guy. But maybe subconsciously, he he affected my approach to working with people. Yeah. So tell us about it. So it's now got this title, Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration. Um, I've seen the pictures and, you know, might get a couple of pictures to put on the, sure. on the blog post if we can, but absolutely fascinating and incredible results. Tell us about it, Tony. So uh, not, uh, that discovery was in 1983 and I, I was over the moon, but the battle had just started. Yeah, so right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How are we going to get this tree to grow more than just a small little bush. Yes, and I managed to convince about 10 farmers in as many villages to at least give it a try on a small corner of their land. And to this day, I don't know if they were the village idiots who didn't care what people (laughs) think. I felt sorry for you. (laughs) Yeah, that's possible. Poor Tony. Okay, let's give him a go. Yeah, or they were visionaries and they knew that there was something in this. I suspect the latter. I suspect the latter. And I suspect you probably conveyed it to them in a way that made them think, okay, let's give it a go. Re- really, they had nothing to lose because I, I said, look, I don't know if this will work or not. I think it will. But just in case, let's do it on just a small piece of land. Because just describe again, I, you know, the situation when you got there, you, there, there, there'd been famines and there was, you know, people desperately in need of food. So they really were at the last end, weren't they? They, they, as you say, they had nothing to lose by trying this. That, that's right. Uh, the, the land had virtually no trees. And, uh, some study calculated there were about four trees per hectare. And unfortunately, I didn't do my own counts because I think that's generous. Yeah. But when you have uh, six, 70 kilometre per hour winds at, at sowing time because there's no, no windbreak, you have 60 degrees Celsius soil temperatures when those seeds are germinating. You've got no natural predators to the great range of pests. We had grasshoppers and caterpillars and sucking bugs and all sorts of things and no um, uh, factors to... There's no birds or anything to to other insects to Because there's no habitat. And and then you had very variable rainfall and increasing frequency and severity of drought. So people really were on the edge and even in a so-called good year, they weren't growing enough food to see them through to the next season. That, that's what I walked into. And I, I tell you, there was one very nervous young agricultural graduate on that land there because I was the so-called uh, re- resident expert. Yes. <laughs> You've never been in a situation like that in your life? Nothing in my experience growing up in Australia, nothing in my university training prepared me for that. Yeah. So that sets the scene, what we were mm. coming into and what the odds were against these people. And and so, yeah, in, in a sense, the f- 10 farmers who adopted, they had nothing to lose. But I think r- really at, at heart, they were the innovators, the yeah. early starters. Yeah. H- however, they were given hell that year. Everybody laughed at them, ridiculed them. Everybody knows that a good farmer is a clean farmer. And the, the culture of conformity, I think the way many of these societies have, have survived is through co- co- cohesion and co- 
conformity. And there's this natural tendency to squash any kind of innovation, any kind of difference. And so they really were picked on. And as the trees grew, sometimes out of spite, sometimes out of this fear of having someone different in the camp, sometimes out of need, people would steal those trees. Mm, chop them down. Yes. And so in 1983, it could have finished there. It w- would have been no story. I, I would have known, yes, it could work, but socially it won't work. Yeah, it can't work. What, ironically, what worked in our favour was in 1984, uh, there was a severe drought. People hardly harvested anything. You know, uh, some, some fields were a total wipeout. And we were in a position where we were able to give food. Now, the government made a ruling, if people are able-bodied, they must work for it. And that really helped us. And so we, we, we laid out a range of work activities, the main one of which was FMNR. If you want this food, and 95% of them really did need it, mm. then one of the activities is you have to leave 40 trees per hectare on at least one hectare of land. And for most of them, they hated me. They thought, how cruel. Yeah, animal. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're forcing your ideas upon us to get food. Yes, and, and we, we know in, in their tradition, in their belief system, we know that trees and crops don't mix. And so they, they, they did it. They but thought you were setting them up for future famine, presumably. P- perhaps. Yeah, because the future crops would fail because of those blessed trees. Yes. And in, in that short period, maybe six to eight months that I had a captive audience, um, they left about half a million trees on their farmland. In September, we had a, a bumper crop. It was a very good rain, rainy season. And immediately we stopped the food aid because we didn't want to create dependency. Mm. And um, But we kept the messaging and kept the visiting and encouraging people to do this. But as soon as we stopped the food program, 75% of the trees got cut out. And people finished with Tony, we'll get on with our life. Thank you very much. But I had a critical mass of people. 25% said, the guy's mad. But... but, but we can see something happening here. We could see something, and we still got a bumper crop. We're going to go take another year. We'll, we'll go as far as we can see where this takes us. And that was the start. Sure enough. And we, we kept the messaging up, the visiting, the encouraging, the occasional prize for exceptional work, um, putting it on radio and all this sort of thing. Mm. And in the meantime, the, the results were self-evident. You didn't, it, it reached a point where you didn't really have to say much. Uh, you just had to look. You had to look. And th- there was one photo I showed you where the, in a drought year, the crop under the tree was the only place where the crop was still alive. So pe- people might not have been to school, but they're very, very they clever. That out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, the women going from walking for hours to get a few miserable sticks for fuel wood and burning not just cow manure, but goat pallets, mm. going from that to having fuel wood close at hand, no, no danger or less. Yeah, on their own land. Nobody chasing them off, nobody attacking them and so on. Extraordinary. Yes. Yeah. Probably the fuel wood thing was a big factor, but I think cutting those 70 kilometer per hour winds and only needing to sow your crop once instead of up to six times in an extreme year made a lot of sense to people yeah and if any if anything because unfortunately the men don't tend to care so much for their wives needs even though the, the fuel would situation really was a crisis 
seeing their crop doing well was probably the biggest factor. Yeah. Yeah. Just gave them that sense of security. And mm. what was extraordinary in your photos was how quickly the trees grew. I mean, you know, you, as you said, it was like having a V8 engine under the ground. You know, it wasn't when you plant seedlings, it, it takes a long time to get any growth. But these little shoots that come up are connected to a massive root system, all plugged into water, all plugged into nutrients, and boom, these things grow. And it was extraordinary to see quite big trees after two years mm -hmm. coming up through the thing. So it, the results must have been amazing to see, you know, two years ago, nothing, or small little bushes, to boom, you've got all these trees and people growing crops underneath them and having fuel wood. Extraordinary. I, I think one of our biggest limitations is our, our mindset and our, our beliefs. And and you come into what is apparently a desert setting, even though it's, it's not true desert. It's, it's altered landscape. But in, in your mind, you've set limitations by your expectations. And when you see what nature can actually do, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. And so from Niger, I mean, I think, I think you said you went back to Australia after Niger in 1999, was it? Or? That, that's right. We lived in Niger for 17 years yeah. and, and then came back here. The other thing you said, which really was interesting, was that you, know, you started this thing in um, this small area where you were working. By the time you left, it had grown exponentially throughout the country, I think, well, certainly throughout the region, where people were able to farmer-to-farmer -farmer communication, spread the word far better than you could have or even your colleagues could have, because people weren't sure if you were telling them the right thing. So we, we facilitated the process a little bit. Every new bunch of Peace Corps volunteers in the, in the last few years that we were in Niger, we would have them for a day on their orientation. Any farmers group, other non-government organisation, forester, faith-based group, we would invite them to come and spend a day with our farmers and see for themselves, ask their questions. We also made the effort to send mostly our farmers, sometimes our staff, to the four corners of Niger. Spend a week there, teach people, then come back home. You know, that, that was from about 1995 till 99 when I left. Nobody ever said, thank you, Tony, it was wonderful, or you ruined my land. Never had any concept of if it had an impact, all that effort. In, I, I left in 99. In 2004, I had the opportunity to go back, and I, I met this guy, Chris Ray, Dutch researcher, and he grabs his pen, he bangs it down on the table and says, Tony, this is astounding. There's probably five million hectares of um, regeneration across this country that used to be barren. Enough research. It's time to get this story out there. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's what Chris has done ever since. <laughs> he's devoted himself to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. So he's one of your disciples in a way. <laughs> in, in a sense. In a sense, yes. yes. But he's, he's been like the Flying Dutchman talking to governments and donors and mm. media, getting the media out there. Five million hectares. It's extraordinary. Yes. And if you do the sums, this is the astounding part of it. it. It spread at a rate of a quarter of a million hectares per year for 20 years without my knowledge. Yeah. And without government funding or, or even, certainly there's a little bit of NGO, non-government uh, intervention, but for the most part of it, it simply spread from farmer to farmer by word of mouth. Because it was such a great idea. And it had such great, great impact. Yes. I mean, you know, we, we talk about this at TFT where we, we look for interventions like that. And we, you know, Bastian, our CEO, he often talks about Uber and Airbnb. Mm. These 
these things that have taken off in the world that never, they, they don't have a marketing budget. They don't do marketing. People do it themselves because they're such great ideas. Yes. And, and his FMNR just seems to be another, well, maybe the first example of such a thing. And great ideas take off. They don't need marketing budgets or great support. If people see the sense in them, away they go. And, mm. you know, I mean, you're changing people's lives. And, um, you know, as you said, in the huge amounts of uh, increases in doubling the yields of their agricultural crops in, in countries where, you know, they were facing famine almost on a yearly basis. In- extraordinary. It, it's, it's been phenomenal. As, uh, others did studies and extrapolated the, the results nationwide ba- based on there being 5 million hectares. If we double the yield on each hectare, what does that translate to? And they estimate that every year, without subsidies or fertiliser input, better seed, farmers in Niger are feeding an extra 2.5 million people. They're growing 500,000 tonnes extra of grain than they would have in a business-as-usual case. Which is probably on its way down, in fact. I mean, they were harvesting less and less, weren't they? And now they've actually turned that around and harvesting more and more. They were Because the population is still growing rapidly, it, it simply meant they were migrating into more and more marginal lands, generally heading up towards the Sahara, mm. farming beyond the, the line that you should farm. Yeah. It's just too risky. And, and yes, yields were going down. Yeah, and you told me, jumping around from story to story, but I loved the story where you told me where you were walking, and I think this is when you went to Ethiopia, you walked on the hillside with all the rats. Was that Ethiopia? Yes. Because we should say that, you know, it's it, FMNR and your work, you went to work for World Vision in 1999. That's right. And, and you've taken FMNR beyond Niger and to other countries, for example, Ethiopia. Yeah. Just tell me that story about the hillside and the rocks and the and when you went some years sure. later. So, so joining World Vision has given me a global platform and the first two countries that I had responsibility for our programming in were Ethiopia and Kenya. My first visit in 1999 was to southern Ethiopia and coming from brown, barren Niger, I was very, very surprised because there was a famine on, but the, the grass was waist high. Mm. And I, I said, what's, what's going on here? Why are people hungry? And they said, oh, we call this green famine. So there'd actually been sufficient volume of rain, but the distribution was such that relying on annual crops like maize, the, the, the drought period was in the critical time. They lost everything. Oh. But I digress. There was a hillside uh, near this community that was bare. Uh, Over the years, people had cleared it out out of desperation. They make charcoal to sell so they can buy food. World Vision had um, put in a a spring, a, a spring capping, and I was concerned about the sustainability of this spring because the the hill was bare and I I thought, we're pumping water out of here. The recharge is compromised. Let's reforest the hill. And walking over the, this bare hill, it's just rocky outcrops everywhere, and it was dry season, so the soil was cracked. I, I, I was blown away. There were rats everywhere. They were coming out of the cracks as I walked through it and just scurrying around. It was the only wildlife that I saw. Mm. Two years after starting the reforestation program, and they did this through FMNR primarily, there's a little bit of tree planting. So the trees by this time, they're probably pushing two metres up to three metres tall. In this very 
you know, dry, barren hillside. Oh, oh yeah. Hardly, you know, any soil and rocks. These trees are now two or three metres tall after two years. Well, this, the it's mature just, stumps are there. The mature stumps yeah. are there. It's just pumping nutrients up into these yes. up into these growing shoots. That, that's it's extraordinary, right. isn't it, really? You know, yes. You don't get those results tree planting. That, you can, but generally that's not. Unusual. Yeah, it's unusual. It's unusual, yeah. So any, anyhow, I, I was with visitors and we, they pulled the Toyota up to the edge of this forest and I, I hadn't even got my foot on the ground. I opened the door and legs out the door, but not on the ground. And I was blasted by this chorus of birdsong. And it was like a welcoming committee saying, thank you for giving us our homes back. But that hill, it's 2,723 hectares. It's like a magnet to wildlife in the area. Mm. If you look at a satellite image of the forest... Uh, it's this green slug-shaped area surrounded by bare brown ground. So wherever those animals are coming from, they're making a beeline Straight for the forest. forest. Yeah. yeah, it's extraordinary. And so, so okay, Ethiopia, Kenya, Niger, but it really is global now. Here we are in Indonesia. We've just heard about the work here on Sumba Island. Where where are you at with FMNR now, mate? So with within World Vision, we've been able to introduce it into 24 countries where we operate. I've worked very, very hard. We've established a website to make the information freely available and we've formed partnerships with the likes of World Resources Institute, uh, World Agroforestry Centre. Recently, we've started working towards a partnership with Conservation International because there's so much overlap in what we do. And... Um, through a Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates funded research lab in Seattle, we formed a working group to, to try and come up with ways of massively scaling up the adoption of FMNR worldwide. Because when, when we tell the story, people are amazed, firstly, that they've never heard of it, and secondly, by the impact. And, and then the question comes, well, you know, why isn't it being pushed more aggressively? So in, in this, um, uh, it's called Global Good, the research lab, uh, when they called together a workshop and brought people from around the world to talk about it, we, we, we were trying to identify, well, what are the limitations? Why isn't the message more widely heard? And what can we do to overcome that. So these are the things that we're working on. That Mm. workshop was just this past January. We've got one team working on uh, media strategy and the other team, um, what's what's difficult is I'm really promoting an idea. When, When you plant a tree, you can tag it with a GPS number and photograph it and, uh, you can come back and see if it's there. When I tell people about FMNR, I've got no control on where that message goes. And because there's no resource linked to it, they use what's available, their own, in in Niger, they were so poor, they sharpened their hose. That was their pruning tool. So that message goes out, and then Joe sees his neighbour doing it, and Mary sees her neighbour doing it, and they, they just adopt it spontaneously. There's no feedback to me. So the, the second component that we're working on is how can we, how can we monitor the spread of FMNR? And we'll, we'll look at um, uh, satellite imagery, uh, use of apps, and a- anything else that we can think of so that we can have a better handle on what's happening and be able to give almost live updates to potential donors or researchers or whatever. And information is power. If that information is out, it will increase, I think, increase the adoption rate and the interest in it. 
It's extraordinary. You know, I mean, well, you know, you're 61, as we just learned a little earlier. Still a young fella. <laughs> What's the plan? I mean, this is part of the plan going ahead, but, I mean, you know, you're still travelling a lot and uh, around the world to see these things, to promote it. I mean, what's the future for, for Tony Ronaldo, do you think? Um, ambassador for FMNR the world over and trying to push this thing. I mean, you think, do you get a great sense of, you must have a great sense of joy when you think about where you were all those years ago in Niger and beating your head against a wall trying to get some trees established and you had that fantastic moment when you saw that little bush I mean, do you often reflect on that and think, well, what a, what a way we've come since then? And to think that there's 500 million, what it was, 5 million hectares or hectares. something of trees in Niger. I mean, that's extraordinary, just in one country. Now you're across 20... 24 countries. 24 different countries and taking it to scale more. Yes. I mean, what, and, what do and you some think? And some of those countries are at the, the tipping point where it'll, it'll be out of control. So yeah. still small hectares, but... Suddenly about to explode like Niger. Yes. And, and, and as, as an example, Uganda, there's an FMNR network and the members include the Ministry of Water and Environment, the Ugandan Federation of Farmers, which covers the whole country, various non-government organisations and the World Agroforestry Centre, 19 members and counting, and their objective is to spread it across Uganda and beyond. And beyond. (laughs) So that's just one country. But um, your your original... I I feel very, very rewarded every time I go back to, to see the trees, but especially to see the joy on people's faces and the difference it's made in their lives. I'm very, very happy and very blessed to be in that position where where am I heading? Within World Vision, I've put a lot of effort into training others. And um, within the field offices uh, in, in developing countries, there's a cadre of individuals who are passionate about this and within their own spheres of influence, they're rolling it out. Uh, within our own office in World Vision Australia, we have a small... Uh, group within a team, the, the Food Security and Natural Resources team, that focus pretty much entirely on FMNR. They maintain a website. We run an online training course, which is one of the antidotes to me getting older. I thought, <laughs> I can't do this in every country at the right. rate I've been doing it. So in, in one hit, we can we can reach 30 people from a dozen countries, yes. and, and they actually pay something towards the cost of it. So yeah. that's speeding us up. For the moment, it's still in-house within World Vision, but we hope by June to open that up to anybody. Um, but when I think of the future, I, I guess that I, I already have that type of ambassadorial role, but mm. I would li- like to explore that further. How can we push the limits? Push the limits. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost certain you must have read the, the book The Man Who Planted Trees or The Man Who Planted Hope and Grew Happiness, I sometimes hear it referred to, by Jean Giono. Yes, I love that. I it's love a, it. such a beautiful book and, and I, I, I was given that many, many years ago by a friend who knew I was hoping to become a forester and uh, it's inspired me along the way and it just strikes me that your story has got a lot of parallels there um, and I can imagine you off on some barren hillside in 20 or 30 years' time wondering how you can get some natural regeneration here. <laughs> yeah. do, do you see yourself, you know, putting up, hanging up, the, hanging up the suitcase and the boots at any stage or just keep your passion going for this amazing 
thing you've started so many years ago? Uh, oh, I, I strive to keep fit so that I can keep doing this as long as I can. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, th- this is my passion. I get a lot of joy out of it, and I'm very fortunate that my my uh, spouse, Liz, is the same. Mm. And so very often she's able to travel with me. And as long as God gives us strength and energy, uh, we, we love doing this and we hope we can continue. But I, probably the emphasis needs to be really on training, raising up others. Yeah. yeah. The next generation. Yeah. Yeah, and beyond. Well, so, thanks so much for talking to me today, Tony. Oh, Fascinating for... to finally meet you after <laughs> many years of reading about FMNR and seeing you in this article or that article, and uh, here we are today. So it's a great joy for me, and um, good luck in everything you've got ahead. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure, and, and likewise, great privilege to meet you also. I think we've got an awful lot in common, but, uh, being inspired by Richard and Barbie Baker and then having a common friend. Uh, neither of these guys I met, but uh, Barry Oldfield, somehow we started corresponding. <laughs> and I think that was the link to you making Initially. contact with me, yeah. yeah. But I, I never met you. either of the guys. <laughs> yeah, no, and Barry was a wonderful man and uh, did great things too with the Men of the Trees in Western Australia. So thanks, Tony, and, uh, and good luck, mate. Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to Tony Ronaldo, the man who inspired others to grow trees. A new book is about to be published about Tony's work. It's called Tony Ronaldo, the Forest Maker, and it's by Johannes Dietrich. Give it a read. I guarantee you'll be inspired. I'm Scott Poynton, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.